Hello again and welcome to episode 9, the penultimate episode of Persians, the podcast. The ghost of King Darius does not make an especially dramatic departure. His final lines of advice to his people remind me of one of my favourite sonnets. He tells them to love that well which they must leave ere long. It is what happens during Darius's appearance, this segment of the play that came entirely from Aeschylus's imagination, that makes this play particularly relevant today. As well as the intercultural politics between Greece and Persia, West and East, that we've discussed at length, we have here an even more urgent warning. Here it is described by Lydia Cognordu. Something which is very contemporary, which is the, the, the connection with the cli- climate catastrophe, the, 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 the attempt to control nature, to create profit from it, which Xerxes does. He goes against the, um, the current of Bosporus and he hits Bosporus and he tries to do, he goes beyond a certain limit of respect to the natural world. And that's another Hebrews, and that, and that there is a big part in Darius that he speaks about it. Of course, in a, in a, in a, in a parabole, uh, that is, he says that he thought he would, could win Poseidon, uh, meaning the sea, of course, yeah. you know, not the god. Yeah. And of course, what is killing us today is that those who die are, don't really need wealth anymore. That's what Darius ends with. There's little, they can profit very little, not at all from wealth, the dead. As the smoke clears, or the ghost vanishes, yet again we see the chorus and the queen having to steal themselves and move on. To me, it's quite a significant impulse running through the play, particularly for Queen Atossa. She has to assimilate this information given to her, and she must decide how to continue. The chorus speaks first. Bishapian wararam chiblodin the marbarachlosanish agasanamataroin. It is painful, they say, hearing about the suffering of their people, both now and in the future. Darius didn't discuss Salamis alone, but gave that grisly prediction of the bloody fate that awaits the Persians who stayed in Greece. The Queen has her own reaction. She laments the fact that her son is in this state, that his awful sufferings have left him quite literally in rags. We could be tempted to think that this is a vain woman who's concerned only with appearance, but bear in mind Aeschylus has equated her with Persia. If she is Persia, then her son is the future of Persia. We've heard references to his clothing throughout the play, in Atossa's dream, in the messenger's description, from Darius, and now yet again from the Queen. We know that the chorus's costumes, and Atossa's golden chariot, and even Darius's yellow slippers, will have all helped to construct this image of opulent Persian extravagance. So Xerxes' clothes represent the pride and the wealth of his country. And in the aftermath, that pride and that wealth have taken a severe battering, and so his clothes are likewise reduced to rags. No wonder then that his mother laments this, 
It's far, far bigger than any concern about how he looks in public. And she has a plan. She will go back to the palace and prepare fresh clothes for him. Because they must endure. They must carry on. Aye, ta moron pianta e gawalsh skialadam. Agus e an mi ortun is mo doiv ila gulayer. Nagawil mawak nariha egna gibel atara harp. Emoe me lachapan agas yoi me robi on balasto agas rahi me fuinyen. Mar ni happy me arho shud is anselom in arm natriluk. Atosa has been our mirror through the play. She represents Asia, and it is to her that we must look to see how the empire will react. She's had consistent bad news throughout, with the promise of worse to come, as Lydia explains. And of course she goes to the gods and blah, 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 and then she goes to her husband, calls her husband for help, and then he leaves not with, not even help, but even worse, that all this will get worse. It hasn't ended. There is more coming. So they leave them in a worse situation than before. It's another stroke, another blow with Darius. And then she ends up and says, I'll bring my son new clothes. I will not abandon him. And then she goes, she disappears. The queen now exits because Aeschylus doesn't need her anymore. This is not the kind of play that will have a recognition scene where the hero comes home and his mother will greet him. Far from it. Atosa exits because we don't really need to see any kind of transfer of authority. Once Xerxes comes back, he is the most powerful person in Persia, and so Aeschylus does not need for us to see the queen anymore. It's unsentimental, but dramatically effective particularly in a theatre that has only two actors. According to Aristotle, it was Aeschylus who introduced a second actor in tragedy and reduced the importance of the chorus in favour of dialogue. Professor Oliver Taplin doesn't quite agree, as he explains. This is something on which I've got a, uh, an unorthodox view. I, do, I don't think tragedy ever had only one actor. Uh, okay. I, think it had, I think it had two actors from the start, and I think when these things are changed, they're not changed by an individual playwright. The, the, the old, the old uh, later antiquarian writers love to have to uh, attribute inventions to people. Uh, and as this is already there in Aristotle's poetics. He said Aeschylus changed the number of actors from one to two, and Sophocles changed it from two to three. I think, I think tragedy had two actors right from the start. Um, but it is a play with only yes, with only two actors. That's right. The first place we've got with three actors is the Oristia, which is uh, fourteen years later. At this moment in the play, the two actors exit in quick succession. Darius goes back to the undiscovered country, and Atossa departs again for the palace. The chorus hasn't been alone on stage for a few hundred lines of poetry, and now they perform another Stasimon. In this one. They reminisce about how great Darius was and the successes of Persia during his reign. There's a nostalgia to this, a longing for a past and for a home that no longer exist. 
The chorus sings of how well managed their cities were when Darius ruled, how their military campaigns were successful, how their laws were effective and governed their lives, and how their men came home from battle to their families, uninjured and unharmed. Oh, Papoy, Kadech Amor is Hosanna, a vian ord shivalta shaguinia, nor a really on shanri darios, a vi omlon on hain, gan jival, gan halunt, er homa nanyehe. Merdwish, Rahimur Shinfein could glorifer, our achtashi milete. Agas and Sunvi chorus Tliagin Cholajish Letur, her lilig gach ale rot. Honig our good fellow Valia Slam, Honadilig, Gan Kreti, Gan Dival. The chorus now moves into another list in which they catalogue a variety of the cities and states and islands that were under Darius' control. He ruled over so many cities, without ever having to cross the Halys, the red river that divided Lydia from Persia. He controlled the cities well beyond the rivers and the lakes, all the way as far as Thrace and the Black Sea, and the Hellespont. Kevet kahed arauche, gan fiu awa on Halys et asnu. Gan fiu a hinton hain a augant, na caracha, achaloacha, hartva ba congerach strymon, na dunfort satrosh. Agus na caracha festehe egg fali er a dalav, tidim las mutton loch, the lacca de les marie. Eid city gehuivre hele. Agas quanta kunga and prepontis, agas bail na mara divi. The Hellespont was the site of Xerxes' greatest hubris, so naturally the little mention keeps him in our minds. Contrasting him with his father, the chorus continues the list of Darius' conquests, but their nostalgia for them would have resonated rather differently for the first audience of the play. By the time Aeschylus wrote the Persians, Athens had taken back control of many of these places, so there's a doubly political vibration in hearing these names. Ironically, the Persians list them as they remember their beloved king, but the Athenians in the audience would have enjoyed the list because they knew that the Persians didn't control them at all anymore. As he did with Darius and Plataea, Aeschylus is playing with information, manipulating what is in the past and what is, for the chorus at least, still in the future. Agus na hilan suetje egan wir, eran gosta hal din lehenish, a lian kongeracht an tirsha, er chama lesbos, agus samos, a chahian aloga, hios, agus paros, Naxos, Mykonos, Agus Andros, and Corsa Congoroch de Tenos. (laughs) 
agus the reelig shane he line switch egan voyage from the coast the lemnos agus ikaria rhodos agus knidos agus cartagena kipide paphos soloi agus salamis gerbi a her start uder an ologoin fi lahish This catalogue lists some of the most famous islands in the Mediterranean, a must-see list for any island-hopping trip. The chorus at once reminds Athens of what she has regained in new or restored alliances, and of some of the sites that the Persian survivors must have passed on their way home. The last place on the list is Cyprus, the farthest kingdom from Athens and the closest to Persia. Aeschylus lists three of its most famous cities, Paphos, Soloi, and finally, Salamis. The city shares its name with the island of Ajax, and again we are returned to the site of the Persians' defeat. This double-edged geography might seem like just a list to us now, but it would have been very pleasing to a Greek audience. And even while this Persian chorus sings of a happier time, regardless of any quiet smugness in the Greek minds, they're still sympathetic. The chorus concludes that a malevolent spirit must be punishing them. This reversal of fortune is doubtless at the hands of the gods. Agus the real shale made anger na karacha sever le rachmas agus fer and sentir ionach atomar cholin egnegregi. Vier lawvege koch doariha far fi adam agus elamut. Kauholiha. Achanish, Nilend out fui, Gwilimedek Follint, Achasa, Ornaha, Egnadeha. Ta Bilisha Moor, Fachtagin, the war no muli, a faro, a farage. The political balancing act, whether we choose to depict the Persians with empathy or derision, is a seemingly endless process. The story of these events, albeit not this actual play, has shown up in the cinema on a few notable occasions. Here's Professor Edith Hall talking about how cinema and theatre can differ, with apologies for a few strange echoes that have crept in on the digital recording. Well, the, t- the, two, the two Persians movies, the two Thermopylae mo- movies, the 300 from the early 60s, and um, Zack Snyder's sort of war porn, I call it. It really is war porn. Um, The first one was actually, it was very much, it was just at the moment the Berlin Wall was going up. So the um, overvoice, when it's talking about freedom, it's really talking about the Soviet Union and and Germany, right? It's different in the Zack Snyder thing. the, The other, since the Berlin Wall fell, has transformed from being an Eastern European technocrat being um, some sort of um, Al-Qaeda representative of um, Arabic Islam. And that's very clear from a lot of the costumes in the play. We've actually made, you know, we've pinned the xenophobia on a different group because world history has changed. But um, that, that it's pretty lamentable what's gone on in the cinema. And that's why The Persians is so interesting in, in the theatre that you can actually use these skills as Persians to sort of heal wounds, I think, despite 
this inherent pro-Greek bias precisely because he almost falls in love with these lamenting Persians and you certainly with the chorus feel their pain. All of this play so far has been preparing us for the arrival of Xerxes. In its complicated, political, empathetic, contemporary way, Aeschylus is telling a homecoming story. The homecoming in Greek literature is known as the Nostos. The most famous example, then and now, is Homer's Odyssey, which describes the fantastical, difficult journey that Odysseus makes on his way home to Ithaca from the war at Troy. There were other such poems, called the Nostoi, the homecomings, that told the stories of how all the other heroes came home to Greece after the Trojan War, but these have not survived from antiquity. The Greek audience would have been familiar with this kind of literary, mythological homecoming. More pertinently, they would also have lived through a much more real version as their soldiers and commanders came back to them from the events of Marathon, Salamis, Plataea and so on. This kind of aftermath reunion was very real to them, and of course not every family was lucky enough to see their men come home. Homecomings in tragedy are quite frequent. We see them in Sophocles and Euripides, and of course in Aeschylus' own Agamemnon, which details the king's return from the signal fires all the way to the dramatic reception that Agamemnon receives at the hands of his wife, Clytemnestra. These homecomings often demand that a character account for his actions. There's a kind of a reckoning in which the character who has returned will speak to his experience. At the heart of Greek tragedy is a kind of imaginative leap. As a form, we've jumped from ceremonial dances that might honour a god and from epic poetry that describes things in the past. Here's Oliver Taplin again about how immediate Greek tragedy is by comparison with what came before. I'm actually writing about this at the moment. That, uh, I think that uh, the invention of theatre, the invention, and which meant, which was the same thing as the invention of tragedy, uh, was a much, much bigger step uh, than people realised. Because never before had there been a form of storytelling which draws its audience right into the world of the story. You know, before this, there had always been narrators. Vivid though, though epic may have been, vivid though lyric may have been, there was always a narrator. Whereas in tragedy, there's no narrator. The, the tragedy is the story. The performers become the story and I think for the audience that's a different kind of experience that draws them right into being to being witnesses to being even more than witnesses to being almost participants it draws the audience in 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 such a way that it is much more than just an emotional experience much more than just a thrill much more than just a um, uh, an arousal of pity and fear or something like that it is actually a, a, an experience that they go through that affects their minds, affects their cognition, as well as affects their, their emotion. They're being drawn into these different, these different worlds, these different issues, um, each, one, each one unpredictable, each one uh, um, arousing thoughts about different uh, dilemmas, different problems, different decisions, different... Uh, terrible situations that people find themselves in. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's extraordinary now for us to think of them um, submerging almost sounds too, too passive. Um, 
of them experiencing this uh, so intensely uh, for three whole days. This huge act of immersion, of imagination, must have been quite something to behold. The Persians was the second play in a set of four that Aeschylus wrote in 472 BC. We have some fragments of the other three plays, and some attempts have been made to imagine a narrative or thematic link between them, but we just don't know what that might have been. Surely little could have competed with how Aeschylus ends our play. After about 900 lines of verse, Aeschylus has prepared us for a fascinating reframing of this heroic nostos, or homecoming. We've seen the worried chorus, heard about the Queen's dreams, heard the expansive messenger's depiction of the nation's terrible losses. We've gone through the spectacular necromancy and heard that Persia's troubles are far from over from the mouth of their much-lamented dead king. We've been built up over the course of the play to be somehow sympathetic to Xerxes. All of this despite the fact that he is also the imperialist foreign ruler who led the campaign against Greece and who ensured that Athens was destroyed, even if her people survived. This really is a startling feat of theatrical imagination. And now, finally, Xerxes will come on stage. But of course, we'll have to save his appearance for tomorrow night. Persians the Podcast is being broadcast nightly within Dublin Theatre Festival and is supported by the Arts Council. The project is based around Nulani Gonal's new Irish language translation of the play and it's written and presented by me, Connor Hanretty. It's produced by Maura O'Keefe and our signature music is by Mel Mercier. Tonight you heard me in conversation with Professors Oliver Taplin and Edith Hall and with the marvellous Lydia Conyordu. Our performances were by three of Ireland's finest, Marie Mullen as the Queen and Breedney Nachton and Katrina Nivaraku as the Chorus. Tomorrow will be the last episode of Persians, so I hope you'll join us for it. Thank you for tuning in all the way through. It has been lovely to check the stats and see that we have listeners from Leash to Laos. If you've missed any episodes or would like any further information, you can always visit persiansthepodcast.com. Iowa, August Kolosov. Mm-hmm.